Insights, the podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape. And you're listening to the fourth in our series of Sydney Architecture Festival episodes, highlights from the 2018 Sydney Architecture Festival. Today we're going to hear a, uh, two presentations, one from Dr Anne Watson and one from Dr Christina Gardunia-Freeman discussing the Sydney Opera House or From Poison Chalice to Social Icon, an Accelerated History to Now. This is really the story of the Sydney Opera House and it includes events surrounding the departure of Jönötzen, um, many of which are well known. But uh, Dr Anne Watson's research also reveals a deeper story about the ongoing collaboration between Utzen and Peter Hall, which produced the remarkable building which we know today. It's a global icon that continues to grow in status and in recognition. Combining digital ethnography and data analytics, Dr. Christina Gardunia Friedman shares a new way to measure the social value of architectural icons with implications for world heritage. And I might add, you'll hear in this episode an introduction from Tim Horton and one of his final acts as registrar for the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. And I would just like to take an opportunity to congratulate Tim for a fantastic festival, as usual, and on all of the work that you've managed to deliver and guide the Architects Registration Board through in your time as the registrar. Thank you and farewell to Tim. We are doing the past, present and future of the Opera House. It is a contested past. In some ways, it is a contested future as well, and we hope to explore it all. Dr. Anne Watson's book gives title to this, this part, this opening session, which is around whether the Opera House was, in fact, and is a poison chalice. Anne Watson has a master's uh, in fine arts from the University of Sydney and was formerly the curator of architecture and design at the Powerhouse Museum, no less. She's lectured widely and is known for her work on the Griffins, uh, as well as the Opera House, Mark Newson, as well to give a more contemporary designer. She, is, uh, she has completed a PhD, I believe. It says that you're a PhD candidate, but I think mine's out of date. Uh, and the Faculty of Architecture at Sydney University. So I wonder if you would welcome to kick us off, Dr. Anne Watson. Morning, everyone. Thank you for coming on such a beautiful day. <clears throat> well, what makes a building great? Can great places bring us together? When it comes to the Opera, opera House, the answers, I think, are pretty self-evident. But for me, one of the most important ingredients is a great human backstory. The Opera House is not lacking. If there is a date on which the emergence of modern Australia pivots, it is arguably the 29th of January, 1957 the day that Danish architect Jørgen Utzon's scheme uh, was announced the winner of the international competition to design a national opera house for Sydney. All over the newspapers the following day, Utzon's breathtaking design would continue to draw headlines for the next 15 years and probably will forever. 
for while spectacularly suited to its location against the backdrop of Sydney Harbour and the great arc of its bridge, the design, as we all know, had several major weaknesses, including, critically, the engineering impossibility of the design's free-formed curved concrete shells and the interior space constraints imposed by the placement of the two main performance halls adjacently on the narrow Bennelong Point site. Working collaboratively, it would take Utzon and the London-based structural engineering firm of Arapan Partners over four years, 12 different roof curvature proposals, and untold hours of pioneering computer programming and analysis before the breakthrough spherical geometry of late 1961. Nonetheless, it was this mathematical discipline that facilitated several groundbreaking construction innovations most notably the formation of the arches from repetitive concre uh, precast concrete rib segments and Utzon's ingenious system of tile lids as roof cladding. In March 1959, despite many unresolved issues, the foundations were commenced under pressure from the New South Wales Premier JJ Carl, one of the instigators of the 1956 competition. This politically strategic but premature start while guaranteeing the building's future, would set up a perfect storm of successive difficulties, as each design change impacted on the next construction phase. By late 1965, the cumulative consequences of this unorthodox approach had created a logjam of problems, not the least of which was the blowout in budget and schedule. With the government insisting on cost control and Utzon's relationship uh, with his engineers in steep decline, Utzon dramatically resigned on the 28th of February 1966. Unprepared to accept a compromise strategy, he departed Sydney on the 28th of April, never to return, as we know. Well, it was into this controversial void that the 34-year-old Sydney architect, Peter Hall, bravely, or perhaps naively, stepped in April 1966 as part of the government-appointed consortium Hall Todd and Littlemore. Charged with finishing the building, Hall as design architect had to address many issues, not the least of which was the pressing need to resolve the impasse over the conflicting seating and acoustic requirements of the dual-purpose main hall. The rights and wrongs of Utzon's abrupt departure have been widely discussed over the years, but it is the narrative of the misunderstood creative genius, thwarted by an unsympathetic client and uncooperative consultants, that has stuck and has fed the compelling Utzon myth. So entrenched has this myth become that even <clears throat> half a century on, it continues to eclipse the achievements of those who completed the building. In 2006, as a curator at the Powerhouse Museum, I was editor and a contributing author of a book of essays on the Opera House, intended as a catalogue to an exhibition that sadly never happened. Like almost every Opera House historian before me, I, I adhered to the belief that what was designed after Utzon left was heavily compromised and thus not worth bothering about. The epic struggle to solve the myriad technical and functional hurdles of the interiors after the shells had been constructed, not the reverse, as should have been the case, was simply too challenging to consider. 
That perspective was to change, however, soon after my book, Building a Masterpiece, the Sydney Opera House, uh, still available, I believe, was, uh, it was uh, put out as a second edition in uh, 2013. Uh, soon after it was published, I was introduced to Peter Hall's son, Willie. When Peter Hall died, it was Willie who salvaged his father's papers. Hall's extensive archive, now I'm happy to say in the State Library collection, uh, told a very different story to the one I was familiar with. He was a, a highly talented and committed architect, steeped in modernism, but also in the pragmatics of function. He was an architect who not only greatly uh, respected Utzon, but who was willing to challenge the bureaucrats, as Utzon had done, to ensure the best for the Opera House. And here was a human being who, perhaps unaware of the immense magnitude of the problems he was taking on at the outset of the project, was both professionally um, and to some extent personally undone by the controversies and misunderstandings that have persisted to this day. Um, and uh, adjacent to my 2006 stroke 2013 um, Building a Masterpiece book is uh, the book that grew out of my PhD thesis, The Poison Chalice. Peter Hall was a typical high achiever. Born in Newcastle in 1931, he won a scholarship as a boarder to the Sydney Private School Cranbrook, another scholarship to Sydney University where he achieved a double degree in architecture and in arts. Uh, majoring in the classics, and a trainee bursary in the New South Wales Government government's Architect's Office. Newly graduated in 1957, he was awarded a prestigious travelling scholarship that took him and his soon-to-be wife Libby Bryant on an extended tour of Europe, <clears throat> a trip that was to be pivotal for the affirmation of Hall's interest in modernism and his introduction to the architecture of the Mediterranean countries. Perhaps not pivotal, but certainly portentous, was Hall's travels to Denmark to meet Utzon, then just a year or so into the Opera House uh, design. Hoping to secure some uh, short-term work on the project, Hall was, ironically, unsuccessful because Utzon at this early stage needed a more long-term commitment. The, the Hall archive includes many, many photographs taken by Hall himself and, of course, you know, the odd family photo. But I've included this um, student auditorium design done in probably Hall's final year at Sydney University and it's of um, an unknown auditorium. Um, I'm wanting to think that it may in fact have been um, a student project set to design um, the um, Sydney Opera House. Uh, which, of course, in 1956, early 1957, uh, was in competition. So I think it's kind of um, prescient <laughs> that Hall's having a go at uh, probably the first time he's ever attempted to design um, an interior of an auditorium. Among the photographs of Hall's, uh, or slides, rather, of Hall's um, travel, his um, scholarship travel, in the late 1950s, uh, many photographs of the many European countries he visited. Um, and I'll just flash it through a few up. He was a very, very keen photographer and a very good photographer. Um, Kew Gardens, he loved, a wonderful glass house um, built in the um, mid-19th century. Decimus Burton was the architect, but there was all, all, also quite um, a strong en engineering input. 
And in designing the northern glass walls for the Opera House Hall was to refer to the Kew Gardens um, glass walls as a kind of, um, a, as, a, as a point of reference for the aesthetic that um, they were looking for in the late 1960s for the glass walls. He and his wife spent quite a lot of time in the Mediterranean countries, particularly at Mykonos, um, where apparently Libby became quite ill, so they were there for a couple of months. And lots of beautiful photographs of these very simple white cubic buildings and also some very lovely uh, line drawings by Peter Hall that apparently he uh, sold to tourists. Well, back in the government architect's office in the early 1960s, Hall designed the Sulman Medal winning Goldstein Hall at the University of New South Wales in 1964. It is tempting to speculate that had Hall not garnered the accolades that accompanied the award, the trajectory of his life after 1965 might have been very different. As it was, Hall's obvious talents and growing reputation were what motivated the government architect Ted Farmer to approach him in April 1966 and offer the role of design architect in the consortium set up to complete the Opera House. He was a very fine designer and a man of many parts, wrote Farmer many years later. I had enormous respect for him. Hall's papers are revealing for both the new narrative they uncover and the significance that he himself must surely have attached to what he kept. One of the earliest set of documents is the list of drawings handed over to the new team, Hall's on Littlemore, um, by Utzon's office on the 17th of May 1966, Utzon, of course, having um, left the country by then. Perhaps conscious of the fact that this was a critical moment in the complicated history of the building, Hall retained copies of the various drawing lists and their annotations. Of the 131 drawings on Utzon's list, he identified 14 that were missing in the transfer, including, crucially, two drawings showing the most recent seating lay layouts of the major hall. Not on the list at all were the final major hall ceiling drawings on which the Utzon office had been working in late 1965 and early 1966. Hall's notes record that, um, I quote, critical items, seating and ceiling, are either not shown or not in the set. The transferred drawings also included design work for paving and cladding, the glass walls and the minor hall ceiling. Peter Hall's comments on his handwritten list arranged from useful to design idea to <clears throat> practically useless. There was unanimous agreement amongst all three architects that, um, and I quote again, there were no working drawings available nor any complete detailed drawings. There were models, uh, but they were based on superseded designs for the main hall and it seems unlikely that, all, that Hall had an opportunity to see them. Um, so the sectional model of the major hall is uh, dated to finish, was completed by Finecraft, the model makers, in March 1966 and uh, has often been um, used as an example of uh, the finality of Utzon's designs <clears throat> at this stage. In fact, they weren't at all final, um, as uh, uh, my research has, um, I think, indicated, and other people have also um, indicated. 
But the interesting thing is that the story around this model and its companion model, um, shown here with Joan Southern, which has since disappeared, the section model is in the powerhouse collection, was that in April 1966, when they were completed, they were um, confiscated by the government because uh, you know, they indicated that they showed that Utzon's designs um, were finished and that, you know, they supported Utzon and the government, of course, didn't want this. But in fact, um, I discovered that these two models uh, were um, ordered by the um, Commonwealth Department of um, Trade and Industry to be sent to um, Australian trade displays overseas. And in fact, the, um, both models were sent to Tokyo in April for um, a, a, a trade, um, trade fair. And uh, from then on, travelled the world, didn't come back to Sydney until about a year later. So I think it just goes to show that, you know, you have to be a bit wary and maybe a little bit sceptical about some of the stories that have been generated, um, you know, on, around the, the kind of Utsun pivot. Well, the lack of resolution in the Utzon drawings for the interiors and glass walls after six years of work reflect more than anything the tangled web of complex issues that had stymied progress early in 1966. It is the misguided oversimplification of these issues that has obscured clear thinking about the rationale of the solutions that were eventually adopted. To the Utzon diehards, all that was needed was for Utzon to be given more time, more money and more support to solve the building's many significant design and technical hurdles. But as the post and team soon discovered, solutions could only be found by radical compromise. And it was compromise that Utzon, both before and after his departure, had shown he was unable or unwilling to accept. Apart from budget and schedule, at the core of the problems in the mid-1960s were three key design issues. Utzon's wish to use the technically innovative but largely untested long sheets of plywood for the theatre ceilings and the blade-like mullions of the northern glassed walls. The compromised acoustics, likely to result from a dual-purpose concert opera theatre, and the impossibility of squeezing the required 2,800 seats into it. Solving the first was dependent <clears throat> on the concurrence of Arabs, the structural engineers on the project, since day one. Solving the second and third issues was dependent on the ABC, then the manager of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and the principal user of the main hall, relaxing its insistence on the seating quota and ideal concert acoustics for the hall. But Utzon's relationship with the Arab office in Sydney had soured considerably to the point uh, where communication was highly strained and at best formal and sporadic, and the ABC remained bullishly intransigent over its requirements, threatening to remain in its Sydney Town Hall venue. Two important sets of documents um, in Hall's papers reflect the inception of a strategy to come to grips with these issues. The first records the discussions at the Joint Consultants Summit held on site uh, from the 4th to the 10th of May in 1966, to which Ovarup himself flew from London, and which was apparently the first comprehensive conference since the project started. The second set, diaries, letters and photos, details Hall's first overseas study trip. On the 18th of June 1966, Hall flew to San Francisco, the first stop in a three-month <clears throat> trip to North America, 
the UK, Europe and Japan to meet with acoustic and engineering consultants, theatre design experts and architects, to visit concert halls, opera houses and a range of landmark buildings and to generally equip himself to supply the brief to complete the remaining design of the opera house. Ideally, Hall wrote from London, <clears throat> this brief should have been formulated before planning was begun. Otherwise, the brief could have evolved during planning <clears throat> with the users and a project man manager contributing to the work of the architect and consultants. On any kind of official basis, neither had ever been done, with the result that, after nine years, we were confronted with the statement of the principal prospective user, that is the ABC, that the proposed accommodation was in no way acceptable. The job was being built, in effect, without definition of what was expected of it. One of the accu accusations made against the minister and ourselves in 1966 was that we would reduce <clears throat> the quality of the job. We had no such intention. The big question, though, was what were we supposed to build? Hall alludes here to the ineffectiveness of the Sydney Opera House Trust in formulating a management brief for the building over the years. Had the trust not lost, uh, <clears throat> had the trust not lost sight of the original competition requirements, the stalemate of 1966 might well have been avoided. For the competition clearly articulated that the first priority of the major hall was to be for concerts and second priority to be opera. But that, and I quote, Compromises which will prejudice the entirely satisfactory performance of a function with a higher priority should not be made. At the core of Hall's study trip then was the need to garner best practice opinion to enable an informed decision about the advisability of building a multifunction main hall. So just a few photos. Um, he's trying to figure out how you can squeeze a concert platform um, into a space that's designed for opera with a proscenium theatre. Um, and, of course, it was this dilemma that was to bedevil um, him and his team for the next year or so. Paul, on this trip, uh, visited Japan and absolutely loved it, um, and particularly like Kenzo Tangi's uh, Olympic buildings, which he took many, many photographs of. Um, but one of the buildings that he very much admired, which was only just being completed at the time, this is September 1966, was the Saitama uh, Concert Hall by Kunio uh, Mayakawa, very esteemed Japanese architect. And that um, ribbed, curved ribbed plywood ceiling that you see there in the hall uh, was to be referenced by Peter Hall later, of course, for the concert hall. Well, Hall's recommendation to the government on his return with the support of international and theatre um, theater and acoustic experts was that a single-purpose main <clears throat> auditorium was the ideal around which the new brief should be structured. Released, perhaps strategically, just a few days before Christmas 1966, the review of program with its central proposal for a 2,800-seat concert hall and the relocation of opera to the minor hall provoked a furore unprecedented, even by Opera House standards. In a project long troubled by controversy, the meetings, reports, media coverage, resignations and recriminations generated by the review over the next three months, much of it documented in Hall's papers, would severely test his dedication to the project. 
And of course, there were some wonderful uh, Molnar cartoons in the Sydney Morning Herald going on over the three-month period of the discussions about the review. Molnar was, in fact, uh, an opponent of the review, but it was also a good mate of Peter Hall. So, you know, there was some interesting um, dynamics going on. Not surprisingly, the ABC, whose requirements were com comprehensively met by the review, gave its unreserved support for the changes to the brief. Less supportive, indeed positively disgruntled, was the Elizabethan Theatre Trust, the national managing body for ballet, drama and the country's fledgling opera company under the helm of the redoubtable Nugget Coombs, which understandably took exception to what was considered the relegation of opera to a much smaller hall designed <coughs> originally for drama productions. For the government and hall, it was an unwinnable situation. <clears throat> but what was the alternative? A convertible main hall had been studied but abandoned because its extensive technical requirements were considered unworkable under the restrictive curve of the shell perimeter. And while the Sydney Symphony's subscription audience had already grown the capacity of the orchestra's then home at the Sydney Town Hall, the ETT's opera company, founded in 1956, had had a somewhat problematic recent past with variable production standards, patchy attendances and an inexperienced administration contributing to a decade of what colourful music writer and broadcaster Don Carger described as, as unending traumas. Inevitably, the Minister for Works, Davis Hughes, announced his decision in favour of the review's recommendations on the 21st of March 1967. With some modifications, they effectively provided the blueprint for the as-built opera house interiors. The review acted as a necessary circuit breaker to the impasse of 1966, but there were, of course, consequences. The dual-purpose proscenium stage major hall that Utzon had laboured over for six years now had to be redesigned as an auditorium with an orchestra platform, an organ and choir seating behind negating the logic of Woodson's last design for a curved plywood rib ceiling converging at the proscenium arch. The inadequacies of the stage and orchestra facilities for the newly designed, uh, sorry, the newly designated opera theatre were recognised from the outset and their improvement was explored for over a year by Hall, theatre consultants and the engineers. Short of extending the stage wings into the foyer space, there was little that could be done. And with a decision after much agonised deliberation to abandon Utzon's ambitious scheme for the northern glass walls, um, <clears throat> sorry, the northern uh, glass wall plywood mullions as both too experimental and an impractical intrusion into the foyer's harbour views, the glazing had to be redesigned by the new team, perhaps the most challenging of all the work. So just a few photos, a few images um, of uh, some of the drawings and um, interiors of the acoustic models. Um, huge use, as, as Utzon used many models um, to solve design problems for the building, so did the Hall Todd and Littlemore team. So there were a lot of photographs um, of uh, the, the acoustic model interiors and other sorts of models as well. This is the Opera Theatre just going through various incarnations. 
Um, and at one stage, uh, Hall and his team considered facing the balustrades of the side boxes with gold. <laughs> um, it didn't actually happen, and maybe that would have been a lot of fun, but the, um, the substitute for that lack of colour in the interior was the wonderful John Coburn um, Curtain of the Sun tapestry, which uh, sadly uh, stopped being used very soon after the Opera House opened. And I'm showing this because I'm um, at the moment doing some work for, for the Opera House researching uh, these and other tapestries, such as the Utzon one behind me. And the Coburn tapestries have a very, very interesting backstory. Um, the large photo, the smaller photo shows um, Coburn's cartoons for the tapestry. The large photos, photo shows um, a test hang that was um, done in the concert hall of the restored curtain um, earlier this year. So it's great that the Opera House are undertaking uh, work to um, reinstate uh, these um, very important, I think, heritage items. The seating um, was epic, as, as was everything else, and uh, the glass walls uh, was, as I said, um, probably the, the biggest, the design of the northern glass walls, the biggest hurdle that the team had to overcome, and I won't go into all the, uh, the design variations, changes, but um, for, suffice to say that my chapter on the glass walls in the book is called Contentious Corners. Um, and there were many problems, but one of the biggest was what to do with the, the, the corners, the return walls um, of the north-facing glazing. Well, in retrospect, the changes to the building brief introduced by the review of program were arguably unavoidable. Yes, the now necessary redesign of both auditoria impacted on Woodson's integration, integrated vision for the building, but it was the very magnificence of this vision, unachievable within the constraints of the unorthodox shell structure on the narrow Benelong Point site, inflexible user-client requirements, and the, the limitations of 1960s construction and acoustics technology that paradoxically set the project on an inevitable trajectory to its perplexing denouement in early 1966. What was the architect's great imaginative masterstroke in 1956 was also a classic case of creative overreach. Utzon was mostly correct when he said, it is not I but Sydney Opera House that creates all the enormous difficulties. Mostly because the wild cards of human nature, political intervention, interpersonal conflict and client mismanagement also contributed significantly to the frustration of progress in the first half of the 1960s. They were all issues with which Hall grappled in his determination to make the building fulfil the functions for which it was conceived. But while Utzon and Hall were both victims of the great speculative venture that was the Sydney Opera, Opera House, Utzon's reputation has been unreservedly rehabilitated, while Hall's has languished in an enduring mire of, I believe, uninformed controversy. It is as though the monumental presence of the building itself precludes the possibility of alternative readings that are less than heroic, that challenge the simplistic myth and that suggest the project was beset by all too human failings and contradictions. It seems timely then to reconcile the two halves of the Opera House story, before and after 1966. 
to embrace both Utzon's great achievement and Hall's hard-fought endeavours to complete the building. They are not mutually exclusive, for what they reflect separately and together is history. Not the stuff of legend, but the muddy reality of the collision between the pursuit of creative perfection and the limits of imperfect human knowledge and behaviour. Hall died in straitened circumstances in May 1995. Former government architect Ted Farmer's moving eulogy is as poignant now as it was then, and I quote, I had to choose a design architect who would replace Utzon. I then asked Peter if he would do this, but warned him that the project would always be mixed up with politics, that it could lead to fame for him or the reverse. After a great deal of thought, he accepted. He succeeded beyond doubt, but there is no doubt he sacrificed his career in loyalty to his profession and to me personally. Please welcome Dr. Freeman. Thanks very much for coming, and it's great to see quite a few familiar faces in the audience. Um, so today what I want to talk about, again, um, I guess building on the theme of the festival is, well, what makes a building great? And I'm going to propose that you do. So I want to talk about the other side of architecture, its reception, in order to talk about a very special building, the Sydney Opera House, and how you've made this place truly great. So first I'm going to ask you some questions, um, particularly about your use of social media. So put up your hand, it's all participatory. Um, put up your hand if you like to post images of buildings online. Great, okay, so you're the 1%. Now put up your hand if you like or comment on the images that other people post. Okay, so you're roughly the 9%. Now, put up your hand if you don't actively like posts, but you actually do view images on social media, which probably should be the rest of you. And you're the 90%. Now, this is called the 1% principle, and it's a rule of thumb for online participation, which suggests that for every one person who creates content online, nine others will engage with it, and 90 others will view it, okay? So if we're all posting and liking and viewing images online, don't you think we should take it more seriously? So let's have a look at the impact of posting, liking and viewing for the Sydney Opera House. So in the decade since the Sydney Opera House was inscribed onto the World Heritage List, annual visitors have doubled from 4 million to 8.2 million. Audiences have grown from 1.2 to 1.5 million and tours to experience this iconic building have increased by a third. In addition, the Sydney Opera House now also reports a digital reach of 168 million people. So this means that for every one person who visits the Sydney Opera House in situ, there are 16 others connecting with this place online. Now this is a significant change in how the majority of people now experience and engage with this place. And it has some major implications. Digital communities are now a valuable asset both socially and economically. 
In 2013, Deloitte, as a partner of the Sydney Opera House, uh, produced a very interesting report and estimated that the digital value of the Sydney Opera House was around 59 million Australian dollars. Now, much of this value can be connected to the organisation's strategic approach to developing online content, social media engagement and creative and participatory <coughs> online events. I think the Opera House has done a great job there. But not all of it is simply the result of such future-focused strategies. The Sydney Opera House, like many World Heritage Sites, also has iconic value. Iconic value describes its immaterial significance or the value we can all kind of feel, right? But that exists beyond its material manifestation and its physical site boundaries. It's something we kind of carry with us. Now, Deloitte call this iconic value the building's non-use value, and they estimate that it's actually worth about 2.1 billion Australian dollars. However, the Sydney Opera House is a global icon, so much so that, for example, when I was giving this talk in uh, Morgan State University in Baltimore, a schoolteacher in the audience suggested that children in her class knew the building but had no idea where Australia was located. So it's got this incredible power, right? Which I think you're probably all aware of. So what I'm really interested in exploring with you today are these kinds of connections that exist between people and places, works of architecture, and how what we do online gives us new ways to understand that. Because while the digital reach of 168 million as a statistic is you know, really impressive, in the end it's really about what the Opera House means to you. The World Heritage Inscription in 2007 was a significant milestone for the Sydney Opera House. At the same time, the listing also serves to confirm the broadening scope of world heritage itself to recognise the value of works of modern architecture. News headlines reported that the Sydney Opera House had won top status and that the inscription was a standing ovation, finally recognising the building as a masterpiece of mankind. At the same time, the Sydney Opera House was at 34 years of age, the youngest site to be listed and only the second site to be inscribed during the lifetime of its architect, Jorn Utzon. World Heritage Listing served as a form of international recognition that could quell the ongoing contestation on its significance as a work of architecture. So over time, the Sydney Opera House has been publicly described both as the greatest building in the 20th century as well as a flawed masterpiece. More than 200 monographs and articles, book chapters, and many hundred news stories have been published about this building, and we've obviously added a couple more here today. Um, but so many that architectural critic Elizabeth Farrelly has claimed that it's almost its own literary genre. The 2007 inscription of the Sydney Opera House was not the first time that it had been nominated to become World Heritage. The inscription was actually the culmination of almost three decades of effort to gain recognition. There had been two earlier unsuccessful nominations, the first was prepared in 1980, the second prepared in 1996. In 1996, a partially revised version was uh, attempted to resubmit. The, the political support shifted after a reconciliation was brokered with Utzon, where he was paid his outstanding fees and commissioned to write the now um, guiding document, the design principles to guide the future of the building. You know, the construction was funded through the Opera House Lottery. If you like, at the time, it was like the, the potential crowdfunding. And I think that in exchange for the investment that the public made, they received an image. And this kind of hints at the way that we can start to understand iconicity and social value. The World Heritage Inscription for the Sydney Opera House states, 
The Sydney Opera House is a great architectural work of the 20th century. It represents multiple strands of creativity, both in architectural form and structural design, and great urban sculpture carefully set in a remarkable waterscape and a world-famous iconic building. Now, since the adoption of the World Heritage Convention in 1972, the field of heritage has come to recognise the importance of social and community values. For example, Sophia Lavardi argues that values are subjective and based on changes in time and particular cultural, intellectual and historical and psychological frames of reference held by specific groups. Yet the World Heritage Convention, Convention sorry, only recognises the value of the works of architecture in terms of kind of established fields, so art and history and science, and doesn't actually acknowledge social value. That's a much more developed concept in Australia which makes the inscription of the Sydney Opera House as a world-famous iconic building a kind of a curious inclusion worthy of further investigation. Sociologist Leslie Sclare discusses increasing, the increasing use of the term iconic in regards to architecture by making a distinction between the past and contemporary uses of the term icon as it relates to specific characteristics of architecture. He proposes that iconic in the past is indicative of a different but related condition that, um, which is intended in contemporary discussions on iconic buildings. So iconicity, the, or the idea of iconic has kind of shifted and changed. Sclare proposes, since the advent of the global era that took force after the 1950s, that the term iconic has been more often used in an entirely opposite sense. In more recent years, the term iconic has come to sort of signify a way of describing buildings that challenge stereotypes through the use of unique aesthetic propositions. The contemporary description of buildings as iconic is suggestive of a kind of frame that is, has arisen from the controversy around their aesthetic departure from established norms. Now, both past and contemporary uses of the term imply that community recognition is part of the significance of such places. However, Sclare argues that in this contemporary use of the term, iconicity arises because of the participation of a community who discuss the controversial aesthetic strategy such buildings deploy. Unusual forms are often described in popular culture in terms of their ability to suggest more familiar objects. For example, London's gherkin or even our own local scrunched paper bag. Uh, understood through Sclare's theorisation of architectural iconicity, the value of the Sydney Opera House as a world-famous icon of architecture is connected to its visual popularity and formal distinctiveness and situated in society. So the inscription of the Sydney Opera House for its value as a world-famous iconic building is an acknowledgement of the way this place has gained popular value and recognition in contrast to its acclaim within its disciplinary field. The statement of outstanding universal value of the Sydney Opera House describes the building as a great artistic monument and an icon accessible to society at large. But in the nomination, whilst the primary argument for inscription is the building's contribution to the fields of architecture and engineering, its description as an icon encapsulates its social significance. So what I'm really trying to propose in the research that I have carried out is that um, iconicity is really about an architectural value and a social value, a socio-visual value that is particularly um, developed and very clear around the Sydney Opera House. Um, and that this kind of is able to be seen in popular culture and everyday culture. The research analysed a collection of over a thousand representations as well as observations of discussions and activities that 
all of you posted online, or some of you perhaps, across YouTube, Pinterest, Wikipedia, Facebook, etc. And whilst we might think that these fleeting digital engagements might not appear to matter, en masse, they start to reveal the way in which global communities appropriate, extend and transform the cultural significance of the Sydney Opera House. These digital engagements, as I've already alluded to, outnumber in-person visits and have become a far more common way to experience this and many other World Heritage sites. The emergence of Web 2.0, uh, redefined mass communication, and the paradigm shift to, from read-only to read-write has meant that the concept of participatory culture, I think, has now become widely accepted. Previously, audiences were usually conceived of as passive spectators. But new media and participatory culture thinks of audiences as fans, as ones that are actively and critically engaged creative groups of people. Participatory culture enables new readings of the popular value of the Sydney Opera House. Iconic value, part visual and part social, is embedded in a series of practices that articulate people's connection to place. Now, I want to be clear, it's not that these practices weren't taking place before, but the advent of our activities online actually enable us to see them in new ways. Now, the idea of global online communities within architecture and heritage has to date received little attention. Whilst the World Heritage Convention is widely recognised, and I quote, for promoting the idea that heritage is a universal concern, end quote, when communities are discussed, they are mostly characterised as local or barely characterised at all. In contrast, the activities of audiences and tourists and visitors are seen in terms of consumption, one which often threatens the conservation of inscribed sites. And so what I've found, really, is that we need to kind of dissolve some of those barriers because... Um, when we look at the set of images around the Sydney Opera House, we can start to see that there are six socio-visual practices that are evident in what people have done with this building. Firstly, they tell the story of the building's realisation. And I guess, you know, I'd have to include myself in that particular part. They critique the building's form, both ridiculous and sublime. They make the Sydney Opera House both miniature and gigantic. They trade on the prestige of the Opera House. They visit the building and appropriate it through souvenirs, trying to capture that particular experience, and then also capture its fantastic architectural forms through photographs. And all of these practices become shared online and arise from the social value held for this place by individuals and groups both near and far. On Wikipedia, the Sydney Opera House article page is watched by a group of people who are communally invested in telling the story of this place. By analysing the talk and the view history pages of the main article page, it is possible to discern the complex negotiations that occur around the published version of the building's history and its realisation. These back pages document the interactions of this online community centred on the Wikipedia article as their focus. Their careful editorship seeks to represent the Sydney Opera House accurately with technical, historical and aesthetic details at the forefront of debates. The community watcher's sense of ownership over the public Wikipedia article demonstrates how such online collaboration engenders a sense of attachment and investment in this place without actually necessarily being at the building. So in contrast, recreations of Eric Thake's well-known 1979 liner cut, which I'm sure you all love and adore, as I do, um, titled An Opera House in Every Home, demonstrates how critiquing is a way of making personal connections. Thake's liner cut compares freshly washed dishes in a drying rack to the Sydney Opera House. Thake's witty visual pun, like the recreations that see this image in unrelated piles of washing up, 
draws this national monument into the realm of personal domesticity, as you can see here. And such critiques are not limited to just dishes in a dish rack, but include other kinds of analogies, for example, flowers unfolding, uh, mushrooms, and even a pet dog's kind of mohawk hairstyle. Now, this is not an unproblematic kind of area or unproblematic kind of finding. Such examples of participatory culture pose challenges for world heritage and their organisations. They potentially impinge on international systems of copyright, the authority of the expert and the endorsement of national narratives. So validating such instances of participatory culture could be seen to subvert the very values for which a place has been inscribed. And other instances of participatory culture, for example this one here, demonstrate the complexity of such practices, so they're not easy to kind of, you know, get a handle on. Um, at times, they blur the boundaries between tangible and intangible forms of culture and often combine situated experiences with digitally mediated ones. So participation can be community-led or motivated by commercial organisations. Participatory practices often transgress corporate regulation. For example, the making of a giant 1.8-tonne chocolate mud cake in the shape of the Sydney Opera House in 2011 to celebrate Australia Day was both a media stunt by cake company Planet Cake as well as a charity fundraiser, so $40,000 was raised. Now, the Sydney Opera House, as you're probably aware, has not only trademarked the silhouette, but in 2014 added the three-dimensional form of the building in order to protect it. The use and association of the image underpins the organisation's funding through their corporate partnership scheme. Yet the volunteer participants who helped make this kind of gigantic edible building describe their experience of making the Sydney Opera House through an architectural lens, which I think is you know, really quite curious, finding new appreciation for the complexity of the structure amongst the challenges of working with edible media. While the main event was located in Sydney, the process was documented on YouTube and shared uh, through Planet Cake's online community via Facebook, television and traditional media. And so it kind of raises these sorts of questions. How can these forms of social significance be acknowledged? On one hand, the decorating of cake has a long cultural history and could be considered a form of kind of intangible culture. The volunteers were all selected and were all quite skilled in the practice of making, making, you know, kind of large show cakes. But in this instance, the cake making is about a tangible and a protected building. And some of the interactions actually turn up to be online. I come back to the idea of kind of what makes a building truly great, based on the, the investigation that I've taken out um, around the Sydney Opera House. And what I'd kind of like to propose is that it's the way that people engage with it in all sorts of ways. It's their connections with works of architecture and how such places become cultural loci that generate, maintain and enable these sorts of relationships. So forms of participation enabled through social media, such as the examples re examined here, reveal the complex and dynamic ways that such world heritage sites are significant to individuals, groups and communities. Digital artefacts connect people with their memories and experiences of physical places, as well as with existing rituals, for example, the tributes that were written at the time of Woodson's death as well. And these are now being transformed by internet and communication technologies and enabling us to see aspects which were previously kind of protected within people's personal social circles. 
So I'd kind of like to draw on you to say that we need to consider the exponential growth of online engagements because it suggests that this may be the primary way that people are engaging with places such as the Sydney Opera House. And therefore we need to kind of start recognising the role of these kinds of experiences beyond the site themselves. Um, and think about how this might change values and also offer different ways of experiencing buildings that can aid the issues that come around the fragility of people walking around sites. Um, as Cornelius Holthoff provocatively argues, in 50 years it is likely that much of what we preserve today as cultural heritage will have been redefined and rewritten as something else and other things we cannot even imagine today will have arrived, rendering our present into world heritage. So understood through the lens of participatory culture, the impressive digital reach figures, sorry, the impressive digital reach figures reported by the Sydney Opera House, as well as Deloitte's estimate of its non-use value, is actually indicative of a much larger community invested in the conservation of this place. And I'm looking now at seeing how we might be able to draw upon this. So, in conclusion, truly great architecture, I think, is like a conversation. Buildings like the Sydney Opera House invite us to invest emotionally, they speak to our collective identity, and they're part of our everyday lives. And in the end, you do the rest. Thank you. And that was Dr Anne Watson and Dr Christina Gardunia freeman Thank you again to our speakers for um, joining us for the 2018 Sydney Architect Festival at the Opera House. And thanks again to all of our festival partners. Thanks for listening to Architecture Insights. I'm your host, Di Snape. Mm -hmm.